0: Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org. Welcome to Plato's Cave, I'm Jordan Myers, and today we're going to take another step towards exiting the cave by speaking with Professor Matthew McCannis. Matthew is a professor of politics and international relations at the University of Tec de Monterrey in Mexico. He teaches political science and theory there. Uh, And we talked today about his uh, new book that has just come out, Myth and Mayhem, A Leftist Critique of Jordan Peterson, which he co-authored with um, three other authors. Um, It's a really great book. I haven't read the entirety of it yet, but the part I have read has been excellent. And I thought my conversation with Matt was excellent as well. Um, So I hope you really enjoy it. And with that introduction, please enjoy the episode. Okay, so with me today I have uh, Matthew McCannis. Uh, Matthew is a professor of politics and international relations at the University of Tech de Monterrey, Mexico. Um, am I pronouncing that right? Uh,
1: it's Tech de Monterrey, uh, and actually, Tech I'm Monterey. going to Whitman College in Washington State uh, as of August this year. So,
0: oh, really nice, nice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was your background, and now you're uh, and now you're going to be moving. So. Um, you've also written a book which is going to be the, um, the basis of our conversation today. It's called Myth and Mayhem, a Leftist Critique of Jordan Peterson. And you've co-authored that with uh, four other authors. So besides your teaching position in the book, um, is there anything that you would like the audience to know about you or your background?
1: No, I mean, you described it really well. Um, finished my PhD in 2017. Um, I got this gig in Mexico, which was quite the adventure, uh, actually. I really liked it. I uh, taught there for two years. Moving to the United States, and uh, yeah, I've just been pumping out books with people like Ben and uh, <laughs> Zero for a
0: while. Nice. And did you do your, um, your PhD in a, a US um, education, or was that in Mexico also?
1: No, uh, I'm from Canada originally, so I did mine uh, at York University in uh, Toronto.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah, I did read that. Um, that's cool. So you're, uh, you're going to be uh, ab- either being educated in or educating in three different countries across North America.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I have a goal. I, I tell my wife sometimes that we got to move to, like, eventually Guatemala and Panama because I'll do the whole life. <laughs> you know what I mean? i I'll yeah, live yeah. in North America. You know, but, um, yeah, no, it's uh, been a pretty hectic past couple of years. I'll tell you mm-hmm.
0: that much. I can imagine, yeah. Um, are there are there any, you know, obviously I guess everywhere is different, but are there any obvious strengths or anything that you liked a lot more about one um style of, I guess, you know, you are educated and then we're teaching, but is there anything different between um, uh, Mexico and Canada that you prefer as far as teaching?
1: Canadian students tend to be a lot more polite and a little bit more, I don't (laughs) want to say subservient, but just uh, a little bit more obedient. Let's just put it that way. Uh, Mexican students are friendlier, I should say, uh, but they're also a little bit more you know, let's make a deal. Maybe we could do something. Let's try to work it out and teach her. Um, Yeah,
2: yeah. So
1: it's a bit of a, a more laid-back atmosphere. Uh, you know, I had students who would invite me, uh, t- you know, to their house uh, to grab drinks. I had one student invite me to, like, their birthday. Uh, I always made sure to wait till after everything was, like, signed and all that kind of stuff. But it's a really <laughs> casual kind of environment. Right? Hmm.
0: That sounds cool. So, yeah, you've, uh, like I mentioned, you've co-authored this book. And um, we're going to use your section of the book um, to discuss it. But I should just make the blanket statement that um, any, you know, conversation that we have is no substitute for uh, your chapter, let alone the rest of the book. Um, So I'd highly recommend people read it because um, so far it's been excellent, in my opinion. Um, Yeah, sure thing. So basically, I'm curious when – because this book – is very recently published. Um, it's a 2020 book. So when did you guys decide that you were going to write this book and what was sort of the impetus of it?
1: Sure. Well, uh, I was wrapping up my PhD uh, in Toronto, where Jordan Peterson is from, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you might imagine, uh, when he started really rising to fame into 2016, he was the top of the town, at least amongst uh, you know academic circles, right? Because If you're an academic at Toronto University, your kind of expectation is that you'll be known by a few hundred people who are in your field. uh, And that's about it. Uh, You won't be cited in the National Post or appearing on YouTube (laughs) videos with millions and millions of views. And so this was kind of intriguing. Right. Um, And I also went to a university that was kind of famous for producing uh, social justice activism. Uh, So I kind of was intrigued uh, by this individual who was really pushing against the Canadian academic system. Uh, in a pretty virulent way, and gaining some traction on that. So what I decided to do, uh, once my PhD was wrapped up, and I no longer had to devote my life and sweat to my thesis, was basically, well, I'll give this guy a read-through and see what it is that he has to say. Um, So I read through maps of meaning twice, uh, and then when 12 Rules for Life came out, uh, I polished through that, which was a more accessible kind of take on many of the same themes. Uh, And I actually thought that there were some things that he said that were quite interesting, right? Uh, They were relevant, they were you know, um, helpful advice at uh, points. Um, when it came to politics though, I felt that in many cases, Peterson overstated his own originality, uh, sometimes by a, a wide mile, let's just put it that way. Right. Uh, because a great deal of what he had said, uh, was very consonant with other right-wing right-wing critiques of modernity, uh, stuff that you can see going as far back as the 18th or 19th century, right. Uh, people like Heidegger and Nietzsche, you know, the obvious uh, substitutes, uh, but you can also talk about people, um, like Joseph de or even Evan Burke uh, in some respects. Um, And Peterson, in many cases, was updating a lot of the themes that these people uh, had been iterating uh, by kind of glossing them up with some recent developments in neuropsychology, um, mythology, literature, uh, and a variety of other disciplines. So even at that point, I thought, well, maybe what I could do is comment on this, uh, because I have some experience and background in the critique of modernity, both from a left-wing and a right-wing perspective. Uh, and explain what I think is wrong with it. Uh, and I got, actually, a, a pretty interesting reception. Uh, you know, there were the angry people who just wrote in, and they're like, basically, fuck you, you know, how dare you, you know, insult this guy, or how dare you criticize him. Uh, but I also got some more nuanced responses by people saying, like, look, you know, I disagree, or I really like Professor Peterson a lot, or Professor Peterson has changed my life, but I have to admit, you know, that you've made me think a little bit differently about some what he's saying, uh, you know, what do you think about this and that, Uh, And it really made me think that there was perhaps a hunger uh, for a more substantive critique uh, that spelled out at length uh, what was wrong with his work from a left-wing perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. But not wanting to do it alone, because, you know, uh, the critique of modernity is not the only thing one can comment on when looking at his work. Uh, I decided to bring in Conrad uh, to handle the stuff on Marxism and postmodernism, Marian Franco, who was a professor in my department, uh, to handle the stuff on his comments on feminism, uh, and then, as you know, I decided to I- invite uh, Ben Burgess, who's a friend of mine, um, and I'm a big fan of his book, uh, Logic for the Left, um, to handle the stuff about argumentation and the more formal dimensions of Petersonian arguments. So that's really how the book came together. Oh, and Zeejek, mm. uh, we were lucky enough to get, because Conrad um, invited him, we didn't expect that he was going to say yes to writing the introduction, but surprisingly, you know, he kind of begrudgingly was like, ah, oh, fine, here you go. Yeah, yeah. We were very happy about that.
0: Yeah and and to be honest it's like you kind of alluded to I I really like the book so far because I mean you and your co-authors are taking big swings at Peterson but it's all on the merits of his argument it's not um it's not an attack on you know like him personally as kind of he's a little bit fond of when attacking some of his political opponents and um you know I've noticed that there's like you kind of alluded to again there's a lot of um uh, pushback against him that is really ineffectual because it never really addresses the arguments. Um, you know, he, that people level accusations against him, which honestly may or may not be true to certain degrees of, you know, sexism or misogyny or, um, or racism even. Um, but, but I liked that you guys really, you know, you took big swings at him, but from a very honest position and more importantly, um, you go out of your way and you've already done it to say where you think he actually goes right. So I really appreciate that style in the book.
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, we were very insistent upon that the whole way through, right? Um, mm-hmm. And one of the reasons was I just felt that um, a lot of the criticisms that had come out about Peterson um, prior to our book, some of them were good. You know, I really like the current affairs piece by Nathan Robinson, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was some very good writing, actually from other conservatives, particularly from a Catholic perspective, uh, pinpointing what was wrong with his work uh, when it came to invoking the Christian tradition and trying to combine it with Nietzsche, which is kind of a blasphemous combination mm. in some senses. Uh, but, you know, we really want to make sure that, look, we're dealing with the ideas first, uh, the man second, and, you know, his celebrity third. Uh, mm-hmm. So we do touch a little bit on the kuha around him. And then we also give a little bit of a biography of Peterson and you know, maybe talk a little bit about how uh, this might have informed his thinking or why it informed his thinking. Uh, but mainly it was just supposed to be Four academics, uh, five if you include the introduction. Talking about it, another academic, uh, saying where we thought the argument was strong, uh, but then also commenting on the many ways that we thought the arguments uh, were weak, particularly when it pertained to political uh, and to a lesser extent philosophical issues.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So, on you mentioned Nietzsche, um, and that was kind of the first thing that I was interested to to chat with you about because he, um, I think it's the first or one of the first things you address in the book, but. Um, you know, Peterson has this um, sort of shtick about uh, nihilism and meaning, and he he kind of touts what I I believe to be his own sort of spin on this Nietzschean sense of nihilism. Where he, um, I guess, he and Nietzsche kind of say the same things, but I what, from what I can understand, different reasons. It seems like Nietzsche, as um, he's laid out in his work, *Thus Spoke Zarathustra* you know, really looks at like undercutting what society sort of imputes on us in terms of meaning, right? Like, um, you know, we we constantly do things for reasons that we don't even understand because we're trying to adhere to these arbitrary societal norms um, and that these are so ingrained in us that sometimes we're not even aware of what it is that we want. But Peterson and, and he's, you know, Nietzsche in that project is undercutting um, traditional senses of meaning. But it seems like Peterson kind of comes at it, and you say this in the book, where he lays this accusation of nihilism at the feet of two main culprits, um, scientific rationalism and rationalistic individualism or ideologies pushed um, by individuals. And I really like Nietzsche's answer to nihilism more than Peterson's, and I'm curious um, if you agree with that and to what extent you do.
1: Well, that's one of the things that's characteristically baffling uh, in some senses about his work, right? Because mm. Peterson tends to draw from a lot of different wells uh, and evokes them, uh, you know, in this kind of uh, pastiche-like manner. Uh, and he sometimes does this so rapidly, uh, with such conviction, uh, that it can be hard to actually detect where there might be incongruities in the sources that he's invoking, mm.
2: right?
1: Uh, and I think the Nietzsche one is a very interesting uh, example of this because uh, Peterson, of course, talks a great deal about the glories of Western civilization the importance of Christianity uh, and, you know, the kind of nihilism that has emerged in a post-Christian world, right,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and you know how we need to have almost a revival uh, of a certain religious sensibility uh, in, you know, post-modernity now, uh, but of course Nietzsche had a very different interpretation of Christianity, right? Uh, Christianity was in part responsible for the emergence of a nihilistic culture, uh, mm-hmm. and this is because it was a slave morality, first and foremost, uh, it overturned life-affirming values, uh, and so, while a lot of people did actually face the problem of nihilism in a more straightforward manner because of the collapse of belief in God, what we need to recognize, according to Nietzsche, is that Christianity was beset by internal tensions and contradictions that almost made it inevitable that it was going to fall, right? And mm-hmm. that we were going to birth this new age of the overman or the last man, depending upon uh, our strength and our will to power, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And Peterson never really acknowledges this really anti-Christian constraint uh, of Nietzsche's thinking, right? Um, And the more interesting argument that Christianity is in no small part responsible for its own downfall, right? It's not external people saying Christianity has to fall. It's Christianity no longer providing the meaning that it once did for people for a variety of different reasons, right? Uh, He kind of takes them and tries to blend them together uh, into this unholy marriage of Heaven and Hell uh, that does resonate, I think, in part because the kind of person who's concerned about the fall of Western Christianity is also the kind of person who'd be attracted to the big, narratives of decline and fall that also appear in Nietzsche's work, right? Mm. But once you actually try to unpack this philosophically, uh, or even genealogically, uh, it doesn't really make as much sense uh, as Peterson seems to think it does. And it would require a more analytically precise and rigorous hand to try to enact the kind of synthesis that he does. Mm -hmm. Or that he wants to, I should say.
0: Yeah, it's it's almost like he. I mean, from my eye, he missed the best parts of Nietzsche. Um, it's like he, you know, he uh, he kind of puts forth Nietzsche's critique of, of of typical senses of meaning. And sure, that's great. But then, I mean, like you said, he just totally misses the mark on, um, you know, conflating. He seems to conflate a structure to life that that being a Christian or buying into the mythology might provide with with, like you said, the very reasons why we've left religion, um, in, in droves. And it's, it's strange. And I honestly don't, it's, it's weird to me that he, and I'm curious if you have any insights being more familiar with maps of meaning, why he's so drawn to, you know, a religion as the answer to the meaning crisis, but B, um, Christianity specifically, and why he adopts those two viewpoints over the Nietzschean sense of of you know becoming the overman or the ubermensch.
1: Well, I don't think this is at all unique to Peterson, right? Um, sometimes he likes to write as though it is unique to him. I mean, that's the meaning opens with this uh, invocation of the gospel, or sorry, the Bible, saying, you know, I will utter truths that thus far I have been hidden from man, <laughs> uh, and my kind of things have been, these have been hidden only from people who've never cracked. Being in time, or cracked, thus books like or any number of other right-wing uh, critiques of modernity, right, uh, even up to like Alistair McIntyre and figures like that, right. Uh, and there's always, it's particularly on the political right, been the simultaneous attraction uh, to what you might call cultural Christendom, uh, or the history of Christian decline and fall, uh, and Nietzsche, and a lot of figures vacillate back and forth uh, between these two poles uh, in this very unholy kind of manner, right. And Mm. I think the reason is because what Nietzsche does share uh, with some of the more reactionary Christian critics of modernity uh, is the sense that we live in a time period that's radically fallen, right? Mm. Uh, It's debased, it lacks meaning, it's nihilistic, uh, people have become materialistic and individualistic in this kind of narrow manner. uh, And Nietzsche at some points actually talks about why Christianity might even be preferable uh, to this nihilistic period of last men, right? In the genealogy of morals, he says... Christianity, for all its fault, made them more interesting, because uh, at least they were concerned with some transcended problems beyond them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, you know, Nietzsche and cultural and critics uh, come to very different conclusions about what the answer to the fallenness of modernity is, uh, right? Uh, but for somebody who feels that modernity is radically fallen, it's not that unusual to gravitate towards the one or the other, uh, depending on your mood. Uh, and a very good example of this would be someone like Martin Heidegger, uh, who Peterson also invokes quite consistently, right? Uh, Heidegger, early in his life, was a Catholic philosopher, right? He was going to work in the Catholic tradition, was a devout believer, uh, later became a radical atheist, uh, dedicating himself to the philosophy of Nietzsche, particularly uh, the Nazi interpretation of Nietzsche that was uh, mm. very popular through the 1930s right? Heidegger was a Nazi. Uh, and then later on, you know, he kind of renounced at least his, some of his atheism, uh, and by the 1950s started talking about why... Only the gods can save us now. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: And he did kind of insist that this wasn't meant to be interpreted too literally, uh, but he does seem to be calling almost for a theological reawakening at that point. right? Uh, so, Heidegger's mm-hmm. life is a really good testament to this tendency of people on the political right to gravitate towards you know, Christian renewal or theological renewal on one hand, uh, or Nietzschean theories of greatness on the other. And Peterson is no different in this regard.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting. So, why... Uh, The other thing I've never understood about his, um, sort of like uplifting view of Christianity is he doesn't, he, I've never understood the logical connection between a, a lack of meaning because, you know, even if you grant that sort of the, um, the critique of modernity is a hundred percent true, right? Let's just say that life now for most people is totally bereft of meaning. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that religion is either the best antidote to that, or, or rather antidote to that, and it really doesn't have any logical connection to whether God, in any you know metaphysical sense, actually exists. And he seems to really kind of be non-committal in his answer to those two questions.
1: No, and I think it flows from his philosophical idealism, right? Uh, I mean, early mm. on in Maps of Meaning, uh, which I think is still why they considered his magnum opus for a good reason, right? He says, uh, you know, he came to the realization that beliefs made the world. Uh, and in some mm-hmm. senses, you know, uh, beliefs operated in a more than metaphysical way, uh, you know, to structure our reality, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's idealism of the highest order, right? Uh, you know, material relations don't matter. Physical uh, qualities don't really matter all that much. And except insofar so far as they contribute to the formation of beliefs uh, and, when you adopt this kind of philosophical idealism about beliefs, it should come as no surprise that whether God exists materially or theologically is less relevant than the role God is supposed to play in your life psychologically.
2: Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I am not the first person to point that out, right? Um, you can kind of say, well, even if you could prove that God ex- oh, sorry even if you could prove that a life without God is an empty, bereft life, uh, which I don't think it is. I should say, I think that's. A false claim, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean that God exists, right? It could just mean that we live empty, bereft lives, and we're going to have to learn to deal with that, right? Uh, which Nietzsche, uh, to his credit, and someone once was honest enough to, to kind of admit, right? You know, we face the spectrum mm-hmm. of nihilism, we have to deal with it. Uh, so did Max Weber, for that matter, right? Another uh, kind of conservative uh, German thinker said, you know, you have to deal with the problem of nihilism, quote, like a man.
2: Right?
1: Mm-hmm. You deal with it in a tough way. Uh, or you can retreat to the churches in fantasy, Um, in which case, you know, go ahead, right? Mm. Um, And, you know, I think the the other dimension to this that's really important uh, is it's really an uncreative solution uh, in some senses, right? Because the idea behind any kind of reactionary outlook, right, is that the only thing that can solve the problem of nihilism is a return, right? Mm. Uh, And what the problem with a reactionary viewpoint is, of course, uh, they never really ask, well, if... A system of religious belief provided so much meaning to people's life. Why did they abandon it? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. why did it dissolve in the first place? You know, if it was perfect, uh, then people wouldn't have rushed from it in droves, right? And again, here I think Nietzsche is a lot more consistent than Peterson. He says Christianity fell because, quite frankly, Christianity uh, was pretty rotten by the 19th century, right? Uh, it didn't provide any kind of spiritual meaning for people, uh, and I don't think that Peterson is prepared to really fully accept that which is why he can't accept that what we need now to solve the crisis of nihilism is a return, uh, but new and more creative ways of thinking to establish different forms of life and communities uh, that will be meaning given uh, without appealing to previous and dead idols.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you, and you also discuss this in the book, but it, it seems to me, and I'm curious if you maybe have a more nuanced view, but it, it just seems so obviously transparent to me that he returns to Christianity specifically because of the same reason why most people happen to believe in it. It's just because he happened to grow up in a culture that Christianity dominated. And if he was the exact same person, but North America happened to be dominated by Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, then he would probably want to return to those cultures as well. Do you think it's that straightforward or do you see um, a deeper affinity in his, in his view um, to Christianity?
1: I think that his approach is more nuanced than that, right? I don't think he would deny that the cultural context in which we exist frames the particular symbolic forms uh, mm-hmm. that our sense of meaning takes, right? Um, and he points out, for example, you know, that uh, in Hinduism and Taoism uh, or Mesopotamian cultures, right, uh, the symbolic and imagistic ways that people talk about meaning were quite different than what we find here, right? Mm. Uh, I do think that there is a heavy sympathy towards a Christian uh, symbology in his work, probably Mm -hmm. for the reasons that you mentioned, right? He grew up with that. It resonates. Uh, You know, there were still elements of Christian society uh, that were very present uh, at the time of when he was growing up. Um, But I think, you know, in these kind of circumstances, a reactionary person has two choices to make, right? Uh, One is to go down the relativistic route that a theologian like Paul Tillich took, uh, which is almost to say that, look, Christianity holds a certain degree of truth Islam holds a certain degree of truth. Uh, All the different symbols that people are expressing are just different ways of talking about the same thing, right? Mm. Um, Which occasionally Peterson does kind of stress in his work in a Jungian, uh, Campbellian sense, right? Mm -hmm. There are mythic archetypes that are the same throughout cultures. They all talk about the same thing, right? Uh, But then that seems, of course, very close to cultural relativism in some sense, right? There's no way you can say one culture is superior to the other since all cultures more or less came to the same ideas, Independently, because that's just human nature. Uh, and so reactionaries often try to fudge this difference by saying, well, but our way of expressing this symbolically is better or richer or more sophisticated, which is why our civilization is better, and we're entitled to kind of express our own symbolic ways of looking at things unto, upon others. Uh, and I don't think Peterson goes that far, although he does kind of occasionally lean that way, uh, particularly in his later work, right? Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I I I do see that, but it, it seems to me like a little bit of post hoc reasoning on his end where he, you know, he kind of looks back and he says, well, you know, of course, it's not, it just seems very, very coincidental that he's going to think that Christianity has the language and the archetypes that are the most rich and the most meaningful. And it's om- almost like I, I couldn't imagine him saying anything else or anyone from a different religion saying anything else. Um, I mean, uh, you know, there's... There's obviously not, well, there's, you know, there's more people that stay within their own religion than leave it, but there's almost no one who switches religions, right? Um, And it just seems to me like that, it's just so transparent that, you know, he returned to Christianity um, and finds reasons to believe that it's, um, you know, worthwhile to preserve in terms of meaning and purpose in life, simply because that was was what he grew up in. Which you know doesn't discount obviously what you just said, but um, no, I, I, I guess I just think, see it, yeah, more transparently than that.
1: I think there's a lot of validity to that. And give me one second; I'm just going to look up the author's name because I can't sure.
0: pronounce this properly. <laughs> sure. There we go.
1: No, there we go. Uh, so, no, I mean, this is one of the points that I make in the book, and it's that I don't even think that Peterson really cares that much uh, for the theological niceties of Christian thought, right? Uh, mm. And part of the reason for that is because what he's concerned with is the symbolic meaning uh, that these play in his life rather than any kind of rational argumentation uh, for these given positions, right? Uh, and he's also not all that really concerned with invariances within the tradition that would trouble this idea. Uh, that traditions are a complete whole that archetypally express a shared meaning of the world, right? Mm. Uh, one of the examples I give in the book is uh, there was actually a figure who was a very interesting uh, individual, Shusako, uh, Shusaku uh, Endo, a uh, Japanese writer who converted to Christianity, and he wrote a book called Silence uh, that was then turned into a very good movie by Martin Scorsese, right? Uh, and Peterson has this extremely Nietzschean interpretation of Christianity that's extremely odd, right? It's about finding meaning and individualism and greatness, uh, and have these hierarchies that are predicated on lobsters, right? <laughs> uh, you know. And Shisako Endu, actually, I think, uh, coming from a very different culture tradition, has a much richer understanding of what Christianity is about, uh, where he says, Christianity is about laying yourself down, quite literally, for someone else. Uh, and he says, you know, this shouldn't be a hard thing to recognize, since what did the archetypal symbol of Christianity do? Well, he died for the world, right? Uh, And at the end of his book, Silence, uh, Christ literally says, if you need to step on me to save the world, like literally walk on top over over my body, do it. Do it as Mm -hmm. many times as is necessary. And it's very hard to think that Peterson would ever say uh, what a man should do is lay down on his back and allow others to walk over him because that's a holy kind of gesture, right? Uh, Mm. You're supposed to stand up straight with your shoulders back uh, in a position of dominance over others, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't think that Christianity, as it actually operates uh, as a complex theological system, is really that much of interest to him, right? I think Christianity is of interest to him as a kind of shared horizon of meaning that people have, Mm -hmm. uh, that he associates with a lot of other shared horizons of meaning, whether it's the West or Christendom or what have you. uh, And it's necessary to conserve the integrity of these to preserve our sense of order in the world and not to have things change too much. Mm -hmm what these traditions internally actually had to say, particularly when they had very radical things to say, like some iterations of Christianity do, right? The one I, example I gave is a, a really good one. Um, that doesn't interest them that much, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess, again, it's fairly typical of conservative or reactionary interpretations uh, of the Christian tradition, right? Uh, it's radical injunction to lay down your life for another isn't very important. Uh, what matters is evoking Christianity is a trope to maintain social order and stability. Uh, even using violence, if
0: necessary. Right? <laughs> Which is almost, it's very strange, actually, that he does value that part of it, because in that way, he's similar, obviously not the same, but similar to, you know, Marx's uh, quote about the opium of the masses, um, and it's obviously, you know, Peterson's not viewing it in that statism controlling lens, but he is viewing it in terms of, you know, this is almost like a useful fiction for people to hold. Obviously, his idealism, you know, prevents him from using that language per se. But it is strange that he, he you're right, he does, I mean, I'm realizing it more and more as I read this, and, and honestly, as we're talking now, he does really pick and choose from a smattering of a bunch of different people's works and ideas and cobble them together in a very disjointed way.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think actually a point you made is extremely good, right? And this is one of the things that uh, I also tried to point out in the book and that Conrad articulates at like, greater length than me, uh, which is that, you know, you know, one man's uh, venerable tradition uh, mm. is another's hegemonic ideology, right? Uh, and if the only basis you have for determining which is which uh, is do these beliefs matter to someone else, then there's no way of arbitrating uh, between these two claims, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it just all that matters is what you believe. Uh, about the tradition, right? So Peterson looks at the tradition of Western civilization and he sees it more or less as this grandiose uh, achievement uh, that's now come under assault by postmodern neo-Marxism, which has led to this tremendous cultural fall, right? Uh, mm. But any ideological critic, uh, like Slavoj Žižek, for example, who debated with, say, will say, well, when you look at the history uh, of a collection of thoughts that way, uh, you're very much at risk of turning it into an ideology, uh, which is staid and dogmatic, uh, and which misses the kind of tensions inherent uh, within any given system of thought, which are ultimately much more interesting uh, than the things that stabilize it, because they show you how different elements of that system of thought are going to evolve and change in the future.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the other thing, too, is, you know, as you kind of said, if you focus on the meaning um, as the primary sort of metric by which you're evaluating things, it leaves him in a strange position, um, when criticizing meaning that other people may get from, from, you know, stories or, or myths or even, you know, political ideologies that he doesn't agree with because it's weird because, you know, he then, he then sort of flips and attacks them either based on the motivations of the people putting them forth or just flat out on the ideology themselves. And it's really strange that he, kind of tends to evaluate some of his own beliefs or the beliefs that he thinks that people should hold in terms of meaning, um, but then then almost switches what he's placing value on when evaluating arguments of his opponents.
1: Oh, absolutely, right? I mean, I, I don't want to push too much against him here, because every intellectual I know uh, is guilty of some of the same sins they accuse mm-hmm. their opponents of uh, at sure. a certain point, right? We all say, don't add, have an end, don't bring up people's personal lives, don't bring up hypocrisies, uh, you know, because that's not relevant to their argument, uh, and then we all kind of delight when they do actually appear.
2: Right? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I will say that one of the motivations for writing the book was I was extremely disappointed at the extraordinary superficiality of his treatment of the Marxist and postmodern tradition. Uh, mm. And when I mean superficial, I mean he devotes more text uh, to analyzing a single Mesopotamian myth uh, in uh, maps of meaning uh, than he does to analyzing the whole left-wing tradition uh, in 11 scant pages with very, very few footnotes in 12 Rewards for Life, right? Mm. And the problem I have with this is, well, if you're, bench, if you're Tucker Carlson, right, I don't expect much more from you, right? If mm. Tucker Carlson wants to summarize the quote history of what left-wing thought in 11 pages in a self-help manual, well, that's just what Tucker is going to do, right? But if I know you can do be better and you're capable of serious, rigorous scholarship, even if I disagree with it, you know, I'll accept that it's serious and rigorous, um, I don't know much about psychometrics, but you know, accomplished academic, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Then I expect better from you when it comes to dealing with these things, right? And I never really saw any serious effort to engage with his political opponents. Uh, and then he'd be quite angry, right? And that's, again, mm. one of the reasons I was determined in our book that we were going to do better, right? We were going to take Peterson seriously. We are going to read all of his books. We are going to go through the papers and watch the interviews. Uh, and if we got something wrong, at least we could sit there and say, well, we did our best to learn everything we could about the man and his thinking and the time
0: allocated to us which you know also um I, i think you made this point in the text too but you know that project is something that i think you know peterson should be on board with given what he says about you know speaking the truth and holding people accountable to um to what they believe and so you know you're kind of um you're taking whatever rule that is in 12 rules for life very seriously with this book
1: I do. And actually, in some senses, I think it's important to take that more seriously than Peterson himself does. Right. Uh, One of the things I often say, and we kind of adjusted to this in in numerous different uh, forms, is that Peterson often says, you know, speak precisely. Right. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: And he speaks clearly, but not precisely. Uh, And it's Mm -hmm. important to note that there's a very important difference. Right. Uh, You can talk an awful lot of nonsense uh, or make an awful lot of obscure statements, but if the audience thinks they're interpreting what you're saying correctly, uh, then they might say, well, he's a very clear speaker just because your charisma uh, or the kind of power or effect uh, Mm. of your statements overwhelm the kind of rationalizing sensibilities, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking precisely is a lot more difficult, right? Because you have to refer to specific arguments, you have to refer to specific texts, uh, you know, what this person said here and how it differs from this individual here, uh, and Peterson often does not do that, right? Uh, like mm-hmm. I said, in 12 Rules for Life, he kind of lumps this huge number of different authors together uh, in 11 pages, all of whom said extremely different things, uh, had very different motivations, very different histories, and very lived in different time periods, and suggests they're all kind of saying the same thing. It's like, well, no, they're not saying the same thing. Uh, <laughs> and if you cited more than two of their books, you'd know that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's yeah. what being precise means.
0: <laughs> yeah, Um it, it's it's it I means interesting, and I think as you alluded to, uh, one of the other authors goes into this more. But he he does sort of lump you know many things together, and he sort of calls these um, you know postmodern neo-Marxist, and sometimes he throws in other jargon with them, like an SJW or a radical leftist, or you know something like that. And it's really interesting because, um, and like you said, you know this is not really a critique of him, but it's more of a critique of this style of speaking is the and it's and it's rightful on his part to demand that people not conflate him with other members of you know the idw or the right um and attack them as a group and and he's right to to demand that sort of individualized criticism and it's just i i agree with you it's really disappointing to see that he doesn't um do that for his opponents because i think that's just i mean if we're going to make any headway anywhere. We just we have to be precise in what we're criticizing.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I'll just give you two examples,
0: right? Um, mm-hmm.
1: I already touched a little bit on the postmodern neo-Marxism one, but I'll just elaborate on it a little bit more detail. Um, and I've talked about this a great deal, but uh, anybody who spent any time with these literatures, uh, over that matter, anyone who spent any time with Marxists uh, and social justice activists will know they're very different people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they have different goals, different ambitions, they draw from different philosophies. Uh, you know, there are postmodern forms, I would say, uh, social justice activism uh, inspired by people like Michel Foucault um, or people uh, like Jacques Derrida, for example. Uh, but they tend to have very different goals um, about inclusion uh, within the existing s- uh, structural uh, status quo. Uh, and then Marxists who say, well, we need to tear the status quo down right, and mm-hmm. place this with a class of society. Um, and they have very different philosophical inclinations as well. right? Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of this nuance is missed, um, and it's really unfortunate because it doesn't take that much effort uh, to realize this, right? Uh, All you'd really need to do is crack open any book by a contemporary Marxist, uh, whether Slavoj Zizek or David Harvey or Frederick Jameson to realize, Harry Eagleton uh, to realize they hate postmodernism, right? Uh, Precisely because they think that it's a form form of identity politics that's all about including people within the contemporary capitalist status quo that previously have been marginalized, uh, when what our real political ambition should be is smashing the status quo and replacing mm-hmm. it with a socialist society, right? Um, and people uh, from the social justice postmodern end hate Marxists, because they say, you're all about class reductionism and making everything about class, but really, you know, what's also important is the marginalization of women, what's also important is the marginalization of racialized communities, what's also important is the marginalization of LGBTQ people, and we need to get away from the kind of grand narratives of Marxism and focus on these very particularized struggles. Right.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So it doesn't take that long to get some familiarity with that, and it doesn't even bother. Right. Uh, The one that I actually find more offensive than that, though, uh, is this invocation of things like um, the rhetoric of distributive justice. Right. So you'll sometimes say things like uh, leftists are concerned for equality of outcome rather than equality of opportunity, Uh, and I think we should be trying to secure equality of opportunity, uh, and we should be very afraid of those who call for equality of outcome. Uh, No leftist that I know of. Uh, and I've read a lot of them, right? Has ever, ever called for anything like equality of opportunity? In fact, no one has ever used the term equality of opportunity, as far as I know.
0: You uh, mean outcome. It was really
1: invented as a kind of term to degrade uh, people on the political left uh, by conservatives, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in much the same way, you know, Peterson kind of uncritically appropriates uh, this language from the enemies of the political left uh, to use it to bash them uh, without any real sophistication uh, being added to his own critiques, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Now, there are a lot of different kinds of egalitarianism out there. Uh, some of which I think are better, and some of which are far, far worse. Right? Um, but you know, again, um, Marx, for example, uh, didn't call for something like equality of outcome. He didn't even call for something like strict equality. Uh, what he wanted was a classless society with the elimination of bourgeois power um, through the establishment of kind of democratic polities uh, that were going to emerge because of this revolutionary period, and so on. Right? Uh, mm. What social justice activists don't necessarily want is uh, equality of outcome. Uh, what they want is usually equal chance for participation in the political sphere and in the economic sphere because they feel they've been marginalized and held back by all kinds of different structures of oppression. Uh, And the irony is a lot of that looks like demanding equality of opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, go back to the civil rights movement, right? Um, You know, Rawlsians, uh, like myself, you know, I kind of identify as a liberal socialist, right? Uh, Say, you know, we don't want, what we want is a system uh, where there is a distribution of wealth to the least well-off that's prioritized, Uh, and this will create a fair society where everyone has a relatively equal chance of realizing all their abilities early on in life, uh, so they can become a person who enjoys equal dignity and self-respect when they become adults. Uh, That doesn't mean that everyone's going to achieve that, uh, since no state can provide that for you, but at least the difference principle will ensure that everyone has the same kind of uh, structural opportunities to achieve it, right? Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: all of this nuance, again, is nowhere to be found uh, in this kind of crude, totalizing uh, language that Peterson invokes. And I find it, frankly, really offensive, since, again, I, he's a very smart guy when he wants to be, uh, and he is capable of mincing nuanced distinctions uh, and dealing with these problems in an analytically rigorous way. Uh, I just don't think, uh, when he was still active, uh, he had the patience for it, uh, or even really the interest, right, since berating people yeah. with simplistic uh, terminology um and bloviating uh, gestures uh, is a lot more resonant uh, to the kind of audience that sucks this up uh, than actually having to deal with these kind of fine-tuned arguments.
0: Mm-hmm. takes a lot less time to research too.
1: <laughs> yeah, it does. Right? I mean, it's, it's unfortunate though, because again, like, uh, yeah. I, I know that was a bit of a rant, right? But, um, yeah, I just expect better from some people. Right. You know, yeah. I don't expect better from Tucker Carlson. Don't expect better from Dave Rubin. Uh, you should expect better
0: from somebody like Jordan Peterson. No, I yeah, I totally agree. And and w- you know one one criticism that you levied in uh, the section where you're where you're looking at twelve rules for life really it hit home for me because I I guess I've always sort of um it, I've I've always found myself in a weird position with some of the stuff that he says in twelve rules for life because. You know a lot of the the generalized lessons that he puts forth are are really good lessons, and honestly apply really you know heavily to people like me, young men who are like you know forging their own future still um, and who are in a position where basically their whole lives are ahead of them and a lot of the the generalized um advice that he gives like you um you know point out is really good advice generally speaking, but the problem is that it is offered um not only as individualized advice, but almost as a sort of grounding for a political worldview. And it it falls very, very flat on that second project, because, you know, as you already alluded to, it, it doesn't tell you anything about almost any political question. Um, like I could, and honestly, I, I think I kind of fit this bill as someone who, personally speaking, really strives to um you know to better myself in the ways that he is advocating for but yet somehow i don't hold really almost any of his political positions um and it's very interesting that i don't think those two things are in conflict but throughout 12 rules for life and throughout his lectures he almost touts them as if you have to have one with the other yeah
1: you know i think that's a very interesting point and you know i came to the same conclusion after reading it oddly enough right Mm -hmm. um because you know I thought to myself, a lot of this is pretty good advice, right? Um, you know, you should clean your room. Uh, and (laughs) if you start dealing with these little things day in and day out, you know, Mm
2: -hmm. clean
1: your room out, go get a little bit of exercise, you know, uh, try to focus on projects. Uh, you probably will some see some improvement, uh, not just in your professional life, but also in your sense of confidence, right? Uh, if you try to treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping, uh, you might develop a sense of self-care and self-worth that's really valuable going forward, right? Uh, Hitting a, a stray cat on the road, I do think it's nice to try to be kind and compassionate to those around us, even those we aren't familiar with, right? I mm-hmm. have no problem at all with any of that individualized advice, and I actually think it's a monument to uh, decades in the field of psychology that he could write a book like that and have it resonate with so many millions of people, right? It's a yeah. to his talent uh, and to all that experience, right? Uh, the problem I have with it is just the one you articulated, right? Uh, sometimes he doesn't stop at individualized psychology, but tries to imply that there are political lessons uh, to what he's talking about, right? Mm. Uh, and the kind of irony here is, one of the things that uh, we got late in before the most uh, is, well, why are you criticizing this person politically and philosophically? Uh, he's a psychologist and he gives psychological advice. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm not the one who made political statements in my book, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I made many, many political statements in my book uh, and goes on YouTube videos and makes many political statements there. So if you're going to do that, you have to realize you're going to invite criticism, right? Uh, And the problem I have with this is that sometimes um, the connection between dealing with your personal problems uh, and dealing with politics uh, and social problems is much tighter than Peterson allows, right? Uh, Treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping is a good example, right? Uh, Peterson almost always insists on things like, um, well, you know, you should put your own house in order before trying to change the world. Well, your house might be disorderly uh, precisely because the world around you is disorderly. Yeah. if your neighborhood is burning, uh, then just sitting there trying to uh, save your own home isn't really going to do all that much, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And if there are major problems in the world, the same kind of reasoning applies, right? Uh, And one of the examples I give that um, resonated with me, at least, uh, because, you know, I worked in a lot of different places while I was doing my PhD and before that, right, Uh, was, look, you know, if you're not making enough money, um, but you're still working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, right? Right. just saying to this person, you know, put your life in order, keep on working harder. Uh, that might not be the actual solution to their problem. The solution to their problem might be creating a union, right? Or joining a political party that will say things like, uh, we demand a fair wage um, for people in your kind of profession. Uh, and Peterson doesn't want people to do that, right? You're just supposed to kind of accept the status quo, do the best you can within it. Uh, and mm-hmm. if you can't succeed in that, well, try harder next time, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and my argument is no, Uh it actually takes a lot of work and demonstrates a lot of character to join together with others and say, look, this is a problem that impacts me in my life uh, and I'm going to change it for me, but I'm also going to try to change it for everyone else. Uh, and for everyone else who's going to be coming along afterwards. Uh, one of the things I also point out is there was another guy who did that Jesus, right? Mm. And that's another irony <laughs> that you find there, right? Uh, you know, Jesus yeah. was dealing with all kinds of internal personal problems. Didn't keep him from going out there and marching uh, and trying to make, uh, you know, the early Roman uh, imperial era into a more humane and better place to live for everyone else around him, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you know, uh, for me living in the United States at this current moment in um, in in early June of 2020, obviously, you know, a, a prime example of this would be someone like Martin Luther King Jr., right? Yeah. Like it it doesn't like it it could not matter less if if MLK's room was clean. What mattered for it, honestly you know for i'm sure him personally i don't know a lot about his biography but i can't imagine that you know creating the social change that he did was not one of the most intensely meaningful things that anyone has ever done um and obviously you know he gave his life for it uh and and the idea that it seems to be a very um it's a, it's kind of a cop out way honestly to deal with people's arguments is to question um you know their motivations or or you know, the state of affairs in their personal life, as opposed to just evaluating um, what they're trying to accomplish on its own merit. Um, like, well, you know, I, I yeah, think, exactly.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think this actually demonstrates the ugliest side to his work, unfortunately, uh, mm. and where it's real reactionary slant comes in, because I think Peterson is best described uh, as what's sometimes called an ordered liberty conservative, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he believes in liberal rights, believes in the structure of capitalism, uh, but wants to maintain a certain degree of traditionalism uh, in there, and I would never support such a position, but it's a reasonable position to take uh, in a democratic society. It's always going to be there. Uh, You know, people on the left like me will just have to learn to deal with that. Right. But it is more reactionary moments. Right. uh, He starts to describe anyone who wants to change the status quo as driven by something like Nietzschean resentment. Right. Mm. Uh, Because you're supposed to accept that the world is full of suffering uh, and that you are destined to suffer and others are destined to suffer uh, and try to overcome that for yourself. And that will demonstrate a degree of greatness uh, that would provide meaning for your life, right? This is sometimes the ethos that comes through uh, in the worst moments of the book, right? Uh, and I'll sit there and say, I don't think that MLK, to use your example, uh, when he wanted to change the structure of society, he was driven by resentment. Uh, and if he was driven by resentment, then he had damn good reason to be resentful, right? Society was unfair. It was unjust. It kept millions of people uh, and, you know, underneath the boots of others. Uh, and. There was nothing wrong with trying to change it in those circumstances. Uh, and I think the same thing applies today for a lot of young people or a lot of people who aren't making ends meet, right? Uh, mm-hmm. If you're angry about the status quo and you think that you've been living in a world that's pretty unfair, because you are living in a world that's pretty unfair, right? Inequality has been skyrocketing, job precarity has increased precipitously. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of professions that have just evaporated and people have been told you have to learn to deal with that. Uh, that's a pretty shitty world, right? And... Uh, it doesn't mean you should hate the world and not try to find joy in it, but if you want to band together with others and try to make a better one, I can't think of a much more meaningful activity that you could find. Uh, and that's not mm. hand resentment, that's demand for justice, and it's what yeah. propelled the world forward from the very beginning.
0: Yeah, and there is you know, a thousand different versions of the, the, you know the quote that has the sentiments of, if you truly do respect an institution or a country or an organization – the highest form of respect you can show is trying to, you know, improve that and, and bring about change for the better. And to just, you know, strangely accept the status quo is, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, I don't know if it's just laziness or, I mean, it's either intellectual laziness or, or personal laziness to not, um, you know, take the time to evaluate what's wrong, you know, what's right and what's wrong in a system and then go about doing the best you can to improve it. Um, And it seems like I'm curious if you if you agree with this, he I think there's almost a, a fallacy kind of vitiating a lot of the work around this where he takes a it's I don't know if it's based in purely his rhetoric or if it goes deeper than that. But it seems like there is is this sort of discussion of the description of the way things are, but with such emotion, and with such appeal to how great some parts of it is, that it morphs morphs from a descriptive claim to almost a normative one, saying this is how things should be, just because they are how they are now.
1: Oh, absolutely, right? And I mean, this is a consistent problem, uh, I'd say, with any kind of uh, conservative outlook, right? Uh, And one of the things that we need to make note of, uh, and I think I referenced this at the beginning, is that conservatism is a disposition, uh, right, to, if you want to put it really simply, privilege the status quo uh, over, you know, uh, any kind of change. Uh, While reactionary um, disposition is you prefer the past to the status quo, uh, and you think we need to bring the status quo more into line with the past,
2: right? Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Now, the problem with this kind of disposition, of course, is that life is change, right? There's no doubt about it, right? Uh, Whatever you do at any given moment is going to change things. uh, And so you're always going to have to struggle to try to keep them the way they are, right? Uh, Mm. And so there's an inherent difficulty there, right? Uh, But I think the more pressing one from Peterson's standpoint, right, uh, is what I was talking about earlier on, right? Uh, To try to describe something as great but under attack, you have to ignore the reasons why it's under attack, right? Uh, Mm. All the structural contradictions, all the tensions, all the bad things about it that lead people to try to corrode it, right? Uh, And you have to try to put up this purified iteration of it uh, that says, despite all that, uh, this is still something we should revere, uh, but then you're not talking about the real world, and you're not talking about real systems of thought and real histories. You're talking about your idealized iteration of it, and uh, saying that people should respond to that and only, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you find iterations of this, you know, throughout, you know, uh, Peterson's work, right? Uh, when it comes to things like patriarchy, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, he really wants to insulate the West today uh, from the claim that we live in a patriarchal society, uh, and consistently talk about the importance of Western emancipation and the role that liberal individualism played in freeing women. And I think a lot of that is true, right? Um, but I also think that it's fairly relevant to the main point, uh, which is, yes, you know, liberal individualism did a lot for women. Uh, liberal individualism also hasn't gone far enough for the emancipation of women or racial minorities uh, or you know, people who are living at the lower edges of society, economically speaking. Uh, so we need to improve it, right? Uh, and if we don't improve it, then you shouldn't be that... Flabbergasted uh, that people start demonstrating hostility to this idealized iteration of liberalism that you have in your head, because it doesn't really bear that much resemblance to what's going on in the ground uh, and the impact uh, that these ideologies have on people's lives and structures of
0: power. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's you know it's it's honestly like you know it's really simple for for me at least. You know, I I there are worlds in which I would be a conservative. It would just be a world in which I think we're we're right on most issues or right on certain issues. Like there could be areas of, of politics where I would be conservative, just meaning that like it's basically just saying I think we're good. Like let's just hold off on this. Let's not change anything right now because it's a it's we're kind of good here. But I don't know how you could look at, you know, the, the current United States or the current Canada or just the current West in general and say that we're, you know, no, we're good. Let's just stop across the board, which which he kinda seems to do. And um, it's just that, you know, you you talked in in the book and and now about, you know, hierarchies and the importance that he places on those. And that's one of the the areas that I think he makes that um, fallacy of conflating the descriptive case with the normative one where he talks about, as you mentioned, you know, his famous um, lobster section of the book where because lobsters organize themselves into these hierarchies that – that revolve around, you know, social position and mating opportunities and things like that. He, he talks about that in a descriptive way. And then there's a sleight of hand and it almost becomes the normative thing that we should do where, you know, because that was our past and in some way our current, you know, um, DNA and our current biology, that that's how we should organize uh, society politically. And that just seems to, to be very, very fallacious on its face because it assumes that that competition for hierarchy is existing in a fair landscape, and it's quite obviously not on many fronts.
1: Oh, yeah, I should say it's not just a fallacious argument. It's a very old argument, right? Uh, I would actually recommend uh, Thomas Piketty's book uh, Capital and Ideology, uh, Hmm. which is his new 1,200-page tome that came out, uh, which is a vast chronicle of how people justify inequalities uh, all around Hmm. the globe. Uh, But one of the things that he points out is that uh, reactionaries and people who tend to support highly calcified, stratified hierarchies Always uh, tend to prefer naturalizing or theologizing uh, descriptions of the world to moral arguments because if you make a moral argument then it seems like the hierarchy is something you can contend with right uh, mm. you sit there and you say well what hierarchies would be justified where should we have them where are they efficient and so on and so forth uh, and this puts this up for dispute right uh, you and I can have different opinions about what hierarchies would be appropriate right uh, it's far easier to say something like well no God ordered the world to be a certain way, he put these people on top and those people at the bottom, and that's where you belong. How can you argue with God? Mm -hmm. Uh, That seems like, you know, pretty compelling to a lot of people until you realize that it's Balderdash, (laughs) and you just reject it, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if that doesn't work, well, you can turn to scientific or pseudoscientific justification for hierarchy. And there are plenty of those throughout the 19th century, right? Arthur de Gobineau, right? Uh, Well, the hierarchies exist because races are unequal, right? Uh, People who are racially inferior at the bottom, people who are racially superior at the top. Um, Even in Western societies, there are racial hierarchies that exist um, between lesser Frenchmen and higher Frenchmen who are aristocrats. And that's just the way the world is. How can you argue with it? Uh, And the same is true now, uh, where people will talk about the invisible hand of the market uh, as though Mm. it's an actual theological entity bestowing (laughs) grace upon people based on their merit and their contribution. uh, When I should say actually no sophisticated commentator on capitalism has ever felt that right. Uh, And it's another kind of naturalizing description, right? Wow, you know, uh, the market has decided this is where you belong. How can you argue with that? Uh, And all these kinds of descriptions are meant to try to eschew the fundamental problem that I thought you put very eloquently, which is that these things are morally contestable, right? You don't have to accept the hierarchies you live in. Maybe you should, but you don't just have to, right? Uh, They need to be morally uh, persuasive right, Mm -hmm. to the majority of us. Uh, and people who want to defend hierarchy don't want you to start thinking that. Uh, and I think we should, especially now when we're living in times of extraordinarily dramatic inequality, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, hierarchy
1: yeah. Uh, that we live under has to be changed uh, in some pretty dramatic ways. I think if we're going to move anything uh, or move close towards anything that approximates a just society.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and honestly, I think that's that's a really you know powerful note to to leave it on because I I know we're coming up on um, an hour and, uh, and, and you've been very generous with, generous with your time. And like I said, you. um, you know, this, this conversation doesn't even come close to covering, uh, your section of the book, let alone, um, the other sections. So, um, in closing, tell people, uh, where they can find this book and then find, uh, more of your work in general.
1: Sure. Uh, so our book is available right now, uh, online. Uh, you can get it at the Zero Books Outlet, uh, you want to be naughty, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, but um, you can also get it on Kindle, and um, if you're in Canada, Indigo uh, you know, has a copy. You can get that online also. Um, I have a new book that's going to be coming out later this year uh, called Liberalism and Liberal Rights, A Critical Legal Argument. Uh, it's going to be a bit more of an academically ponderous tome, uh, but it might be of interest to anyone who's interested in getting my own impression about what kind of society we should be living in, uh, since so I make an argument there for two rights uh, that I think any just society would try to live by, um, you know, a right to democratic and self-authorship, uh, and a right to inequality of capabilities. So that should be out later this year for Al Gray-McMillan, and who knows, maybe it'll be of interest to someone.
0: Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I look forward to it. Thanks. Um Yeah, well, uh, well, thank you again, Matthew. It's been um, really good to talk to you, and I look forward to uh, finishing the other sections of the book. So, um, uh, yeah, thank you.
1: And no It was great talking to you, Matt.
0: Yep. Um, All right, well, uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this um, as well. So, tune in next time. Well, I hope you found that conversation useful and um, maybe even entertaining as well. Um, The show notes to uh, Matthew's work and where you can find the book will be in the description below, wherever you're listening or watching this. And if you'd like to support the work that I'm doing by making these podcasts, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. You can also share this show on Twitter or social media and help more people find out about it. That would be um, a great service to me because I think these conversations are worth having and worth hearing. Um, You can also rate it on Apple podcasts or on whatever um, podcast player that you use. That would be um, equally valuable. You can like, this video on youtube or subscribe on youtube or on an rss feed you can discuss it on your own show and credit um you know back towards me um in the description and you can also connect with me to recommend guests or topics to cover um, and you can get in contact with me through various avenues you can email me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on twitter or talk with me there At Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And as always, um, that will be in the description below this video. And more importantly, as always, thank you for listening and for continuing to struggle to escape the cave. Thank you and tune in next time. Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org.